0: hey everyone this is the philosophy junkie and i welcome you today to philosophize alongside me if you end up liking this episode or any other episode on this podcast check out our website link down below you can find summaries and even transcripts for each and every show there and also a link to support us Visit us on Instagram and Twitter at ThePhilosophyJunkie and at the Phil Junkie. Furthermore, if you're feeling generous today, you can visit our page on patreon.com slash ThePhilosophyJunkie and consider donating money for some additional content. Just a disclaimer before we begin though. I would recommend you bear in mind that our journey won't be one of name dropping, but rather be focused on thoughts, ideologies and beliefs. We will focus more on the what rather than the who of things. Thank you for choosing this podcast to fill your time of the day today, and I really hope you enjoy the show. All right, so before we begin uh, with today's podcast or today's episode, I took your suggestions, and I'm really thankful to those who have supported me in this. Today, I will begin with a brief about the whole situation so that whenever we go into a couple of nasty details, we are prepared for it. Last time, we talked about Socrates and Plato's dialogue, The Apology. Today, we'll continue with Socrates and look at some of Plato's early dialogues to gain a better sense of Socrates and understand the sort of philosopher Plato was in the beginning. The thing we need to understand about Plato is that he's not only a philosopher, but he's also a writer. And just like any other writer, we can see Plato evolve and become a better version of himself. Rather, I wouldn't say he was a writer either. He was a playwright. We can see this transition happen as we move from his early dialogues, which were also called Socratic dialogues, considering Socrates' influence in those dialogues, to his middle dialogues, and thereafter to his later dialogues, which were the dialogues he wrote just before he died. During the early dialogues, we can find Socrates clearing doubts and hence exposing his interlocutors' theories and affirmations. However, in the middle dialogues, we find Socrates forming his own theories and defending them with good argumentation, just like we hoped we would when he was presented before the jury in the apology. From this, we can also say that Socrates has now turned from an editor or a critic of philosophy to a writer of philosophy in a better sense. We can see Socrates, in the later dialogues, actually going out of his comfort zone to expand our knowledge of philosophy. Another thing to take note of is that in the earlier dialogues, we can witness Socrates actually talking about the things that are less profound in their nature. For example, in the Apology, the previous dialogue, we see Socrates talking about things that are more personal to him, like his belief in gods, his activity of corruption of the youth, etc. However, in the later dialogues, we would witness him explaining various profound theories like knowledge, reality, and the state itself. One thing to particularly notice about the evolution of Socrates as a philosopher alongside Plato is that they both become mature through their journey together. At the beginning, we see Socrates being regarded as the wisest man just because he knew that his knowledge was limited and therefore he was quite aware of the extent of his own knowledge. But later, we see Socrates putting forward various forms of knowledge itself, further proving that human knowledge may have different aspects to it, of which he was, until recently, unaware. So today, we are beginning with the famous Socratic dialogue, although not one of my favourite ones, Crito. You remember in the last dialogue, the Apology, we saw that Socrates was sentenced to death. While in Crito, we witness Socrates being persuaded by his wealthy friend Crito to escape prison and run away to some other city. Before we begin, again, let's talk about something. Let's talk about civil disobedience. Do you think it is right to go against a state? If you deem the state to be unjust in its ways, I can hear you all sighing and going, of course, yeah, well, you're obviously right. I mean, it does make sense and the logic is sound, but I don't think Socrates was aware of this. He believed, at least in the early dialogues that Plato wrote about him, that it was unjust to go against the state no matter what the state tells you to do. Does that sound like the state is tyrannical? I think it's quite obvious that a state wherein you are unable to put forward your opinions or argue with the state, a state where any form of dissent is discouraged, is a tyrannical state. Now let us come back to the question of civil disobedience. Would you agree that it is okay or rather it is encouraged that one goes against any tyrannical state in the form of civil disobedience? On top of that, if your answer to that question is yes, would you agree that civil disobedience is probably the best way of going against a tyrannical state? There are so many examples that agree with that statement, right? Like that of Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, the French Revolution and tons of more. In all these situations, civil disobedience, it worked like a charm. Now, let's go back to Athens, 2,500 years ago. Do you think it would be just if Socrates went against the word of the jury and ran away from prison in order to initiate a form of civil disobedience to the tyrannical decision of the state to give him a death sentence? I mean, if you think about it, Socrates did not actually commit a proper crime, right? In very basic terms, Socrates basically pissed off a load of people and then most of the jury, making sure that he was awarded a death sentence for his philosophy. Now, if you remember in the apology, Socrates basically said that he would rather die than be stopped from philosophizing. If you also remember, Socrates does not believe in philosophizing in the form of writing. Therefore, all the philosophy that he is conducting is happening in his brain or in the form of dialogues. So basically, Socrates agreed that he would rather die than be able to process information in a rational and philosophical manner. Think about this. There was no possible way of anybody getting to know what Socrates was doing inside his brain, right? So if you think about it, Socrates basically died for nothing. He could have just said that he agrees to not philosophize anymore and then, well, continue philosophizing. This is why Crito is not one of my favorite dialogues. They never point this out. Well, let's jump into it. So, the Crito picks up from the end of the apology, right? We see Socrates in the prison, and he's then approached by his friend Crito. Crito informs Socrates of the ship's arrival, which would mark an end for Socrates' life and the completion of his death sentence. So, at that time, the ship marked that You know, the sentence had ended and now he had to be put to death. Crito has come to present an escape plan to Socrates, which can be easily executed because Crito is heavily loaded with money and has a load of friends who can help him out in various areas of this escape plan. He begins his argument by telling Socrates that Socrates should think about, one, his duty to his children and do not give in to those who convicted him. He also goes on to say that Socrates would be viewed in bad light by many if he continued with the unjust sentence that has been given to him by the jury. Now, let's go back to our talk about civil disobedience. Do you think, again, would it be just for Socrates to go against the unjust conviction by the jury? Furthermore, do you think it would be just for Socrates to abandon the prison, run away, and to be there for his children, considering he did not actually do anything wrong, per se, like I mentioned before? According to Socrates, the answer to these questions is a simple no. How about we all reverse engineered this? Socrates believes that the state has the right to punish anyone in any manner that they deem fit for any crime, right? What if Socrates who, if you recall from the apology, is the wisest man in all of Athens, believes that the state has supreme authority and the people of the state act as mere subjects to those running the state. Then do you think Socrates is okay with the idea of the state running as if it was an authoritative political setup? If your answer to that is yes, then the state must be tyrannical, right? If Socrates, the wisest man, believes it to be true, then it must be. What's funny though is that Socrates practically believes in the state because of its new origin due to the fall of the tyranny of the 30 after the Peloponnesian war. But his belief is so blind that he is okay with the new state which was formed after the fall of an oppressive oligarchy but is still functioning as a tyranny. So even though Crito has no philosophical knowledge, he is speaking quite logically whereas Socrates is not. So much so that we can even claim that Socrates is acting on pure, individual belief. Now, another point that Crito brings up is that such a voluntary acceptance of his own death would be quite shameful considering how wise and honourable and just Socrates is considered in Athens. If you look a bit deeply, you'll see how Crito is trying to trick Socrates into using his ego to make decisions. He, he even further goes on to say that Socrates was wronged by the city of Athens and so he did not actually have any obligation to stay true to the death sentence that he was given. After this long monologue that Crito gives, Socrates begins his defense and his counter-argument. The point to remember here is that Crito barely has any philosophical knowledge, so he is just going on and agreeing to whatever Socrates says. Socrates quickly dismisses three arguments. First, Crito's argument about the arrangements for the escape. Second, the fact that Crito would lose a good friend. And third, that Socrates has an obligation to his children. For the other arguments that Crito puts forward, it is important for us to take something into consideration. right? For Socrates, knowledge is practically everything. That is, everything in the world revolves around knowledge according to him. Now, if you remember, Crito put put forth an important argument saying that Socrates' reputation is on the line. To this, Socrates replies that the opinion of the many does not matter. To this, (laughs) Crito replies that if it did matter, Socrates would not be sitting in a cell waiting to die. Keeping in mind the premise that we have established, that knowledge is everything, for Socrates, I wanted to listen to what Socrates had to say to this. He said, the many cannot do the most harm as they cannot do the most good. Now here, most harm refers to making a man foolish or taking away his knowledge. And most good is making a man wise or giving him a lot of knowledge. The conversation takes a turn into a discussion, into what sort of activities require the opinion of an expert and which ones are okay to be judged by the opinion of the many. Socrates describes that he finds the many to be not experts at the majority of things. But we can deduce that Socrates was okay with the many deciding whether or not Socrates was guilty during his trial in the Apology. He is also okay with the democracy that has been established within Athens after the tyranny of the Thirty. A democracy which marks the beginning of a rule of the people in the city of Athens. He then goes on to say, That In matters like physical training and other things, the advice of the expert is a much more reliable source of information and that is what we should believe instead of thinking about the opinion of the many. He again goes on to say, and I quote, In the matter of just and unjust, fair and foul, good and evil, which are the subjects of our present consultation, ought we to follow the opinion of the many, and to fear them, or the opinion of the man who has understanding, and whom we ought to fear and reverence more than all the rest of the world, and whom deserting we shall destroy and injure that principle in us, which may be assumed to be improved by justice and deteriorated by injustice. Is there not such a principle? Well, this is a classic case of hypocrisy. If Socrates really believes in the democracy of the people and the jury of 500 laymen, he is trusting the many with the just and unjust, the right and the wrong, good and evil, etc. His argument not only hypocritical, but is also non-sequitur. That means that his argument, his conclusion, does not really coincide with the primary premise that was proposed by him. Who judges as to when it is okay for the many's opinion to be correct and appropriate? Now, there are some premises that we come across during this conversation that's been going on between Kreutberg and Plato in the prison. Let's explore those, right? The first premise is that we should live rightly. This is basically to say that we should do what is right and not fall prey to all things that are wrong. The second premise is that we should never do wrong. Right? This is in conjunction with the previous premise, but adds a very good point to it. You cannot return a wrong for a wrong. The final premise that he puts forth is one must keep their end of the agreement. We arrive at this premise through the conversation about the laws. The one thing that really appeals to people about this dialogue in specific is the personification of the laws. Now, let's even further diver- diversify our premise. Socrates' claims suggested that, one, Socrates, like all citizens of Athens, has entered into an agreement with the laws. Second, the laws are essentially just in their nature. So, the people might be sour in their nature, but the same cannot be said about the laws. Now, a counter-argument can be raised that Socrates believed in the laws of the state and not the state itself. Actually, Socrates brings up this argument himself. He asks crito to imagine the laws of the state to be an actual person. Socrates then conducts a hypothetical conversation between himself and the personification or let's say the embodiment of the laws of the city of Athens. In this conversation, we do see something interesting happening. Socrates takes the position of a not-so-wise man, whereas the Laws take the position of a wise person, which is a kind of a role-reversal because Socrates is usually the wise person in the conversation. The Laws are now using the Socratic method to question Socrates himself, and this hypothetical conversation helps Socrates to show Crito how important it is for Socrates to carry out a sentence and die for his crimes instead of looking at the whole conversation like you normally would, let's look at something else. Let's let's make it a bit more interesting. Stephen Nathanson, he's a philosophy professor and he interprets this conversation in a completely different manner. He says, let's let's see this conversation in three ways. First is the parent argument. The state is Socrates's parent. So, everyone ought to obey his or her parents. If Socrates escapes, he will disobey his parents and therefore Socrates ought not to escape. The second argument is the benefactor argument. The state is Socrates' benefactor and everyone ought to obey his or her benefactors. Therefore, if Socrates escapes, he will disobey his benefactor. Therefore, Socrates ought not to escape. The third argument argument is one of the most important ones in this. It says, and this is the agreement argument, Socrates made an agreement to obey the state. Everyone ought to keep his or her agreements, as we remember from the premise. If Socrates escapes, he will violate an agreement. Therefore, Socrates ought not to escape. All of this is quite confusing, but all in all, what I'm trying to say, as Socrates personified the laws, he says that breaking the laws would be equivalent to punishing the laws as if it were a person. Eventually, the answer to, should I escape from jail, is a plain no. This marks the end of the Socratic dialogue, Crito. But while well, it would be an injustice to the creativity of Plato as a writer and as a philosopher, if I did not combine Crito and Fido together to offer a more accurate conclusion of Socrates' death. Fido, just like Crito, is recalled by someone else and not witnessed by Plato himself. So, even though the philosophy within the text might be exciting to read, and it is, in the back of your mind, imagine Socrates as nothing more than just an actor. He is basically acting like a medium for Plato to conduct his philosophy. Let's jump into Fido. Socrates asks his friends to take away his crying wife at the beginning of Philo because it's his last day on this planet. He then says something very interesting just in the beginning of the dialogue about pleasure. Now, after the last one, you're probably going to hate this, but well, I have to go through with it. So he says, What a strange thing that which men call pleasure seems to be, and how astonishing the relation it has with what is thought to be its opposite, namely pain. A man cannot have both at the same time, yet if he pursues and catches the one, he is almost always bound to catch the other also like two creatures with one head. Well that was quite profound, but did I not say that he is not going to talk about profound things in the early dialogues? Well, I wasn't lying this feeling of pleasure and pain that he's talking about he's referring to the feeling of pain and pleasure that he feels right after his legs are freed from shackles and he is allowed to move as well it is his last day on this planet he's talking about the pain and relief experienced simultaneously but as we're here to philosophize well it's a pretty solid statement isn't it see here Socrates isn't trying to argue with someone or engage in any discourse, discussion, debate. He is actually creating philosophy for us. This is the kind of shift that I've been talking about. We, when we see Plato's dialogues, we see the shift in the early dialogues itself. Socrates, as I said before, acts as a character and so he is more of a medium of philosophizing more than anything for Plato. The theme of Fido that I believe is the core of the whole discussion is based on spirituality and the soul. There are several underlying concepts and in fact, I would even go so far as saying that it explores deeper and more philosophical concepts than the apology. Just talking about the Fido will take me at least 2 hours, but is it going to be worth it? Well, Not really, right? So let's attack the most controversial of all themes in Fardu, immortality. Socrates says that the true philosophers of the world welcome death and accept it as they know that the soul is immortal. The argument that he presents is also known as the argument of the opposites that um, basically state that opposites come from opposites. That, That does not make sense, but bear with me for a couple of more minutes. Example, tall men come from short men. Similarly, life comes from death and death comes from life. Furthermore, he says life can come from death only if the soul already exists without the body. So soul is not part of the body. Only then can life come from death. After that, the soul exists without the body only due to the death of a previous body. So it's a chain reaction, right? And this goes on to prove that therefore, the soul exists after death as well. And therefore, the soul may live forever, as was said and believed by many philosophers at that time. Now, the argument in itself is pretty shitty, to say the least. It's ambiguous, and I think Professor G.J. Matty pretty well explains it. If we suppose that a body was once dead and now lives, there is a sense in which life came to be from death, but there is no further reason to think that it became alive through its previous state of death. Indeed, later in the dialogue, Plato explains that opposites, in fact, recede at the approach of each other. Another problem is with the explanation of how life comes to be through death. The soul is said to have survived the death of a previous body to give life to the current one. So what came to be was life in one body through the death in a different body. But this is not what motivates. The opposites come from opposites principle, right? And it's a bit confusing, so you have to bear with me still. Instead, it is the passing of opposite Two opposite in the same thing, so life to death in the soul itself. A child matures to become larger and stronger. But we do not generally explain the child's becoming larger by means of another child's becoming smaller. So there is a certain independence of both the facts. Now, there are multiple discourses that ensue during this time and multiple exchanges break and form simultaneously. But I'm not going to diverge into that because it does not make any sense for me to do so. The final points which emerge out of this constant philosophizing are 1. The soul brings life to only that body into which it enters. So if there is a body without a soul, it will not be alive. Second, A soulless body, however, is not dead per se therefore a soul full body is not the opposite of a dead body third the soul therefore never really dies now many of you might be watching game of thrones so fourth to quote game of thrones what is dead may never die fifth through this what is dead is indestructible sixth the soul is an indestructible thing you see how we started from one premise and arrived at another? So the premises between those were basically arguments and not premises themselves? I don't know. Maybe it makes sense. We'll look at that. Although all of this is quite fascinating on a spiritual and philosophical front and it may seem pretty logical, but psychology has a ton of proof to disregard almost all of these points what i'm trying to say is that these kind of dialogues are not the supreme authority on a certain field of study however these dialogues are still attributed for they took initiative and began a discourse on a certain field which has resulted in the formation of more literature on those subjects before parting by drinking the hemlock socrates's last words were to crato and he said Crato, we owe a cock to Asclepius. Now, what does this mean? Well, your connotation of a cock might be very inappropriate, but the actual meaning was quite different. By the way, he means a rooster when he says a cock. We tend to forget that Plato was not just a philosopher but also a playwright. Remember, remember the charge against him in the Apology, where he was termed as an atheist. To prove that he was not an atheist. Plato puts this line in the dialogue. It's basically trying to refer to the line in the apology. If Socrates is really an atheist, would he really remember the debt he owes to the god Asclepius? Also, Plato plays with his audience because Asclepius is the god of medicine. So, is Socrates thanking him? For the hemlock that might liberate him from life and put his soul out of its misery? Or is it because his life was his disease and now he's being cured of it because the soul is immortal and he's still going to live without the body? I guess it's just left to our imagination now. Before I end this episode, I want you to think of what you might imagine death would be like. What is the soul? It. May, ha- may as well been Socrates' version of our conscious. But we all know that our conscious die- would die when we do. Again, maybe something that you'd like to question as you exit this podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode and I'll see you guys in the next one. Till then, keep philosophizing with or without me.